0: Three Dog Thursday on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network brought to you by MyBookie.ag. Las Vegas may still be closed down for now, but MyBookie's casino is open 24-7. They're also the home to a free $10,000 Blackjack Madness Tournament. Just use the promo code SGP and get up to $1,000 in bonus bets. Again, that promo code SGP to play, win, and get paid with MyBookie.ag. And Three Dog Thursday is brought to you by the Madden Mayhem tournament going on, a Madden simulation tournament with sports gambling podcasts where SGP is giving away $10,000 in my bookie credits to the winners with the best bracket. And they've got prop bets, live in-game wagering on all the action. Get the info at sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden for more on the Madden Simulation Tournament going on right now. That's sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden. We're also brought to you in part by Ace Per Head. Ace is the leader in pay-per-head providers, and they make it super easy to start your own sportsbook. Plus, Ace is offering up to six weeks free over at aceperhead.com slash SGP. That's aceperhead.com slash SGP.
1: Football fans. Time to go on the record for this week's matches in pro and college football with just one catch. We're only interested in underdogs. Who can keep it close if not pull the outright upset? Time to find out. It's Three Dog Thursday.
0: Now here's your host, TJ Reed. Well, welcome back in, everybody, to the only digital radio show that is devoted exclusively to those underdogs still without the games. Right now, because of COVID-19 and all of the social distancing, the isolation, the quarantining, hopefully will be re-emerging as the calendar flips to May and we'll start to see some sports begin to happen. Again, it's becoming the point in time when we're learning more about having flattened the curve of of the outbreak of this and having it subside, and obviously the heat may very well have a big say-so in eliminating a lot of the coronavirus. And I know that uh, a lot of people are anxious to get back to work, to their jobs, those kind of things at the time in which it is reasonable. Uh, Again, when we all went inside and went on stay at home, it was with the understanding that it was only going to be for a short amount of time. And so we're hoping that that short amount of time is about to be done. In some places, it already is done, where they are uh, under modified rules right now, allowing some to go back to work and opening some things back up. Let's hope that that continues. Obviously, what's going on in the in the New York City area, the greater tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut uh, is much more exaggerated right now with COVID-19 than what it is anywhere else in the country. Uh, by the same token, as of Wednesday, when I am uh, recording Three Dog Thursday here, there are 20, 20 states that have 5,000 or less cases. There are 13 states that have 2,000 or less cases. So in those states, uh, obviously, it is completely, drastically 180 degrees different. Uh, And again, those are cases that the states have had, not that they currently have important distinction on past tense and present tense. Uh, For example, in the county where I live, I do this show uh, in Tampa in west central Florida in the northern suburb of Lutz. In the county where I live, there are over 1.5 million people. There are 35 35 confirmed hospitalizations uh, involving COVID-19, 35 out of 1.5 million people. So it just depends on where you are and what part of the country that you are. But for a great part of the states in this country, uh, there, there is a time and an opportunity now to begin to begin to resume some normalcy, go back to work, uh, g- get back to uh, being able to socialize, et cetera, with the understanding you are going to be around this. You were around this before. Uh, You need to practice good hygiene and and be uh, as sanitary as you possibly can, and you are going to be around it. And uh, again, if you're younger and if you're healthy, even if you do get it, there is uh, astronomical chance that it's going to be serious or fatal for you. So a minimal chance uh, in and around that. And and that's, that's one of the things that we need to continue to project. There are... 98% Ninety-eight percent of the people that are getting this that are that are healthy uh, end up being better and better in a matter of days and able to overcome it, overcome it either with. Uh, medication from their doctor and or uh, their own immune system and so why am I delving into all of this because as it relates to this podcast and as it relates to sports this is the reason why you see sports leagues now beginning to say hey we're going to uh, attempt to play here we've got our athletes our players our coaches the people that are involved we're going to attempt to get back to golf or to racing uh, eventually the basketball playoffs the start of the baseball season etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. and so those are all good things as we begin uh, to move forward. We remind you, uh, by the way, here on Three Dog Thursday, that I don't go this alone. I've got special guests coming up, and we're going to talk a lot of NFL drafts. Straight ahead, Brian Edwards uh, from Vegas Insider and MajorWager.com uh, will be here with his insight on who did well, who did not do as well. Uh, on the draft. Look forward to talking to Brian about it. And then a draft guru uh, from DraftWire, the USA Today uh, website, Luke Easterling, who's the editor of DraftWire, will be on board here with the ins and the outs of who he liked, whom he did not like. Uh, with some of the analysis. And then later on, Chris Giannini of the Winning Cures Everything show and podcast, he and Gary Seegers are frequent contributors here on Three Dog Thursday. I love at the same time cross-promoting and going on their show, Winning Cures Everything, a daily show now. Chris will tell you more about that, Uh, as well as being on the podcast. They're on the YouTube channel, Facebook, Periscope, uh, et cetera, every day breaking it down, Gary Seegers and Chris Giannini. Chris will be here. We'll mix it up and talk some draft. We'll talk some New England Patriots in particular, which he's fond of. I look forward uh, to having all the guests on. And speaking of the draft, so several uh, quick points here on that and two or three other subjects, and then we'll get rolling with our guests. Bravo. Great job by Roger Goodell, the NFL, the television broadcast partners, ESPN, and the NFL Network and dozens of people behind the scenes that pulled off what, what best can be described as really a flawless three nights, and afternoon and night of television, Thursday, Friday and Saturday of last week for the 2020 NFL Draft. Highly unusual, yes, all through video conferencing, coaches, players, draft picks, uh, NFL personnel, analysts and yet you didn't see the glitches that we joked about. And Roger Goodell deserves an awful lot of credit for pushing this through when there were some teams pushing back about don't do this uh, right now. Uh, Again, the commissioner knew what he was doing, knew the hope that it would provide and that sports can provide some normalcy. The fact that over 15 million people were watching on TV, and when you account all of the, the mobile devices that more than 16 million tuned in on the opening night, some I saw some 30 million different people tuned in at one point or another on the three days uh, of the draft. So uh, give uh, give the NFL kudos here for giving us uh, a diversion. And uh, and now sports can begin to bring us back as we turn to May and May will become June. And again, when it's reasonable, um, I, I will say once again, we don't know what the future is. I've said this so many times. I'm going to say it again, though, as, as we head into the month of May. Nobody knows about June yet. Nobody knows about August yet. Nobody knows about October yet. And by the way, you don't need to be making decisions about August and October while you're in the first week in May. We can go week by week and continue to plan and continue to see what this is. And obviously, uh, one of the important things is there there was no huge swell uh, that we kept hearing about, a surge that we kept hearing about in the modeling That didn't happen, folks. It did not happen throughout the month of April anywhere other than New York City where the problems already existed in May. I'm sorry, in March. The surge was already going on in March. For the rest of the parts of the country, I mean, again, I live in west central Florida. And the the, uh, St. Pete and Clearwater beaches uh, were full of spring breakers. And it made a national and world... And internet headlines that, oh my God, what are they doing allowing everybody to be out at the beach for spring break? And then the predictions were, well, there's going to be a surge in that county where, where uh, St. Pete and Clearwater are, Pinellas County. Folks, as I talk to you right now, there are fewer than 700 confirmed cases of this entirety of COVID-19 in Pinellas County. There was no surge. There is no surge from what happened on spring break seven weeks ago or even eight weeks ago the first week of March with spring break. It did not affect tens of thousands of Pinellas County, St. Pete, Clearwater residents. It did not result in 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 deaths. Thank God none of that happened. And so, again, for the sports leagues, they're mindful of of all of this. And we have to be careful of the fear-mongering, the hystericals that are that are screaming about we can't go back, we can't go back. Well, where is the evidence that says that if we go back, it's going to be uh, horrific? There, there is no evidence right now of a surge. And in a great many states, it's basically been stamped out. And if we take the proper precautions uh, with these different sporting events and with going back to employment... You're going to have to take some risk at some point or else you're never leaving your house in 2020 or maybe 2021 if you don't go and take the risk. And you were around, again, this is an undeniable point for any of the fear-mongering hysterics. You were already around this in January and February. You were around it in shopping malls, at schools with kids, in airports, at games, At movie theaters, at concerts, you were around this if you were around people. And you were traveling and around people. And so you've got to be ready to be back around it again. And the NFL, bravo for saying, hey, we're going to move forward. Our schedule's going to get released. We're looking to play games in the fall. We're going to put the schedule out. Let's see how it goes. Let's see what happens when the PGA Tour resumes. Basketball and hockey playoffs, when they get ready to resume. Uh, Later in this summer, boxing that will resume. Uh, I'm anxious to see all of that. So again, bravo to the NFL. We'll have draft analysis and insight. Uh, by the way, uh, you know that it has been a busy free agency offseason for my Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, who I do the radio broadcast with Gene Deckerhoff and Dave Moore, and I'm associated with the team broadcast. I was part of their draft coverage hosting uh, on the official Bucs station and uh, and on the app the other night on the draft show that we did in Around the Bucs who grabbed uh, Tristan Wirfs, the offensive lineman, uh, from Iowa in the opening round trading up a spot with the 49ers to grab Werfs, all Big Ten offensive linemen. Later in the draft, the Buccaneers getting Antoine Winfield Jr., who we'll talk about later on. as a safety from Minnesota as well as some other players. But the Bucks in free agency getting Tom Brady, talking Rob Gronkowski out of retirement, and now we know the other shoe is dropped, and Jameis Winston, the former Buccaneer quarterback, has found a landing spot with the New Orleans Saints. So we'll talk more with my guests uh, that are coming up between Brian Edwards of uh, MajorWager.com, uh, Luke Easterling of uh, of DraftWire, and also Chris Giannini of the Winning Cures Everything podcast. We'll have some opinions about the draft and about Jameis. But I will say this. I will say it now publicly. I've said it privately for the last couple of years. I never believed that there was a market out there for anybody else to pay Jameis Winston $25 or $30 million. And I said so privately over and over again. And I'm pulling the curtain back a little bit that I can have those kind of opinions privately, and I can't always come on the Three Dog Thursday podcast when it's the team that I'm working for and a player that I'm covering and broadcast that and proclaim that the same way if I was just doing a talk show, just doing this podcast on five days a week, on TV, on the Internet, whatever. I work for the team. And and look, I, I wish no ill will uh, towards Jameis now that he's got a new team with the New Orleans Saints, except when they play the Buccaneers, obviously, if Jameis is to get in there. But the point I'm making is this. I never believed, ever, and said so privately over and over again, that there was another team that was going to give Jameis Winston $25 or $30 million. And to those Buck fans that argued with me uh, repeatedly, and I'll probably say this again as the podcast goes on, to those media members that argued with me repeatedly, Jameis Winston signed uh, this week with the New Orleans Saints for just over a million dollars a year. Jameis Winston didn't get $25 million, $20 million, $10 million, or $5 million from another team. The market, the NFL free agent market, dictated that Jameis Winston, and I don't want to hear that, well, maybe he turned down a two-year deal or a three-year deal from No, he didn't. No, he didn't. If he had a two or a three-year deal that was going to pay him three, five, seven million dollars, eight million dollars, he's gonna take that deal. He's going to take that deal because that's more than likely guaranteed money, or at least part of it's guaranteed money. He got a million dollars from the New Orleans Saints, guaranteed. And even if he had gotten a two or three year deal, it was as a backup, not likely, probably a couple year deal. He was not going to get 25 or 20 million or 15 million to be a backup anywhere else. So that argument is over with. It's done. We now know the answer. And score one. For the kid here, the host of Three Dog Thursday, for saying that over and over again, the Bucs were negotiating against themselves when they picked up his fifth year option last year. And that's now proven in free agency because there was not another team willing to do this. And look, there were other players. Cam Newton right now is without a gig. There's not a team that's going to pay Cam Newton 20 or $25 million either with the injury concerns that he has with his foot. He will be fortunate if he gets the same one-year deal for minimal money, a million, a couple million, maybe an incentive thing. That's what he's going to get. Phillip Rivers had no problem getting 25 mil on a one-year deal from the Colts. Teddy Bridgewater certainly cashed in with a humongous multi-year deal with with the Panthers in the NFC South sticking in the South. So obviously, there are teams that had needs at quarterback, Indianapolis... And Carolina is two that were willing to pay 20 plus million to get that quarterback. The Chargers went the other way and the Chargers said we're not paying twenty twenty five million to Jameis to Cam Newton or to anybody else. We're going to draft Justin Herbert, which they did the other night. So that was a tactic on their part and a little bit different. So anyway, there's some thoughts on the draft. We'll get into who we liked and who we didn't like with the guest coming up in a couple moments. couple of other sports opinions, because again, it's Three Dog Thursday. How many of you are watching this last dance documentary series on ESPN? We all are, aren't we? With the Chicago Bulls, 97-98 season, the sixth title in eight years. And look, I'm no Chicago Bulls fan. I grew up a Boston Celtics fan. I gravitated to the Celtics because I grew up in Tennessee before moving to Tampa, And in both places, Tennessee and Tampa, there were no professional basketball teams. The closest thing I ever had in East Tennessee was the Atlanta Hawks, who were about three hours away. And I never was a Hawks fan. In Tampa, growing up in my youth, there were no professional basketball teams in Florida. I was still a Celtics fan with Bird, McHale, Parrish, DJ, Danny Ainge. I even I even go back to Cornbread Maxwell, Pistol Pete, Maravich, Nate Archibald, and all those Celtics. My father's a lifelong Celtic fan from having grown up in Memphis, Tennessee. Again, there were no professional teams. So anyway, I was never a Bulls fan. But this stuff is riveting. Uh, and it's not just because we don't have sports going around. I'd have been watching it anyway. From the 1990s and the late 90s NBA, riveting to watch this series. Let's clear something up real quick here on Three Dog Thursday. On this whole issue of the Detroit Pistons, the crybabies that they were in the 1991 playoffs when they were swept by the Bulls and in the final game at the Palace in Auburn Hills of the Sweep, Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer and Mark Aguirre and those guys couldn't be bothered with shaking hands and wanted to stalk off and Isaiah ducking his head down like a little kid who's in trouble, I'm not going to shake your hand. So for Isaiah Thomas to now revise history and try to come out some 30 years later, 30 plus years later, and say, well, the Boston Celtics did the same thing to us back in the 1988 playoffs. They did the same thing to us. Uh, no, it was not the same thing. The circumstances were different. Number one, the game was in the Silverdome in Detroit, the Pistons' home stadium slash arena. In this case, the Pistons were at home with the Bulls doing this on their home floor. Now, why is that important? Because in that day in the 1980s, fans were still storming the court over and over and over again in series-clinching games. You watch the video of Larry Bird and the Celtics trying to get off their own floor— much less the Lakers or the Rockets or whomever they were playing in the NBA Finals of the Boston Garden with the people mobbing the Boston Garden court and security, un- security unable to stop them. It was scary what went on in the 80s. And in a lot of places, whether, whether you're talking about Detroit or the Lakers or in Philadelphia when they ran on the floor, when everybody's running on the floor, it's nuts. So the Celtics were being beaten for the first time ever by Isaiah and Aguirre and Lambeer and the Pistons in 1988 after the the Celtics had beaten them dramatically in the seven-game series in 1987. Now the Pistons break through, beat Bird, McHale, Parish, and the Celtics the following year. They're at the Silverdome in the clinching game. The game is decided. One of the Pistons, I don't remember who it was, is at the foul line. And the Celtics in the final seconds are saying, look, we're not going to wait on the Silverdome court here and, and risk our health and safety to have all the Pistons run on the floor at us. We are leaving. And by the way, in the Silver Dome, the locker room is easily a quarter of a mile away from the floor. It's not like it was right by their bench. You know, walk off the end of the bench and get to the tunnel and get to the locker room. Like it was, by the way, for the Pistons. And the Palace of Auburn Hills when they're walking by the Bulls and walking right into the tunnel. The Celtics are going to have to go across the floor and towards the football locker rooms out the tunnel in the football configuration of the Silverdome. That's why they left the floor before the final horn. Not the same thing as the Pistons cowardly, classlessly leaving the floor with the Bulls. And good for Michael Jordan that even 30 years later he's saying to Isaiah Thomas, I I don't care what you have to say about trying to rationalize this. It was classless. And as Jordan pointed out, and they showed the video last week in the episodes, when the Pistons eliminated the Bulls back in the 1989 and the, the 1990 playoffs on their way to the NBA Finals, Michael Jordan shook Isaiah Thomas's hand. And Scottie Pippen shook Dumars and Thomas and Aguire's hand. They congratulated them. They showed class. So, uh, again... Uh, there is no comparison between the two. Enough of the Isaiah spin. They froze him out on the Dream Team, largely because they couldn't stand the Pistons. And that whole Jordan rules things of, of let's knock Michael Jordan to the floor over and over again, we got 30 fouls to give with our big guys between Rick Mahorn and Lambeer and James Edwards and John Sally. We're going to keep knocking him to the floor. And Aguirre, we're going to keep pounding him, knocking him over. No wonder... When Michael and Scotty got the upper hand in 91 and 92, they wanted nothing to do with the Pistons. Keep them off the dream team, especially after they stalked off the floor classlessly in 91. So again, I can't wait for more episodes of The Last Dance. Thank you for letting me go on the diatribe with that. Before we get to the guests in a moment, one more thing on Major League Baseball. I don't know when and how they're going to get the baseball season started. We've seen all of these different ideas being floated through the media. Being leaked. I've done this for a long time now. At the highest level, at the national level, Sirius XM, Fox Sports Radio, tune in and on this podcast. talk to a lot of different people in a lot of professional sports. Seen a lot. I can tell you from the cheap seats, I don't have any insight here. It doesn't look like Major League Baseball has a coherent plan on how to start their season. Because if they did, they'd already be talking about it. Because the clock is already ticking on being able to play 162 games, which now is not going to happen. They're too far behind. Are they going to be able to play 120 games if they start in June? Maybe. Is it more realistic that they're going to play 100 games, special circumstance this season, and then move on to their postseason in October? That's probably what's going to happen. But you keep seeing, or remember three, four weeks ago, it was, okay, they're going to resume, but potentially everybody's going to go to Arizona because it's all within a 50-mile radius. All these minor league stadiums where all the teams train, and you can have everybody living in and around the same 50-mile radius in the hotels, and it's all a bus ride, and everybody's going to play there, and we'll play the season, or at least the beginning of the season, the first couple of months of the season. Well, then we heard that the plan is, okay, the Arizona spring training teams will play in Arizona. The Florida spring training teams will play in Florida. We'll have two separate divisional champions. And then we'll, we'll have an extended postseason with some other teams from Arizona or Florida in the mix. Well, now comes the latest. Uh, oh, and then, by the way, the third idea was, okay, we'll put some teams in the middle. In Texas, we'll have Florida. We'll have Texas. We'll have Arizona, and east a central and a west, and utilize the minor league stadiums empty, and we'll even utilize the Rangers' new ballpark. We'll, we'll use uh, the Rays and Tropicana Field. We'll use the Diamondbacks Chase Field in downtown uh, Phoenix because it's inside, uh, so you you don't ever have rainouts. We're going to use all that. So that that that's three ideas that have now been floated, and now the latest that's being floated earlier this week is you're going to play at all the major league sites in empty stadiums. Again, it just seems to me, I mean, that's crazy to me, because now you're traveling all over the country on airplanes. What, what happened to sequestering, biodome, controlling the environment of who you're around, the hotel, the empty stadiums? If you're doing this in all the multiple cities, the 25 cities of Major League Baseball, How are you going to control who's traveling where on what airplane and what they're exposed to and what hotel? Much harder to do. It seems to me from the cheap seats that Major League Baseball is just floating whatever out there. Trial balloon, throw the spaghetti against the wall. They don't have a plan. They better get one. They better get one in a hurry because you need to be playing games in June. If Major League Baseball gets to June and they don't have a plan and they're not playing, which I believe they will be in the next 30 to 45 days, you're going to see some version of a spring training again for a couple of weeks for guys to get loose, try to get into shape, get some timing down, practice games amongst themselves, workouts amongst themselves, and then let's just go play. But that that's going to take a couple of weeks. If If they're not playing by the middle of June, if this is July or the middle of July, you may be talking about an 81-game schedule. You may be talking like basketball and hockey, like an 82-game schedule. And then play the postseason. You don't have enough days in July, August, and September to play all the games. To be able to play, even with double headers, you don't. You got to give guys some days off. You can't play seven straight days for 15 straight weeks. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to have an occasional day off. Yes, play double headers and an occasional day off, and you run out of days in July. Again, I'm not the anointed dictator or king of what baseball is doing. All I'm pointing out is from years of experience uh, of watching this through the media and watch how these leagues operate, they don't have a plan. If they had a plan, they'd be articulating it to their teams, and they'd be preparing for it for June. Maybe they will have a plan next week, the week after. And again, if if it's going to every city, I mean, how do you go play games in New York in June or July, even in an empty stadium, with what's going on there, the optics of that? Uh, And there's a couple of other places. Detroit has been hit hard. How do you go play in Detroit, where they have had uh, thousands of deaths in that area? Uh, And in California, where they have uh, the governor, who's been very proactive in saying, we're not going to have sports in this state for a while. How do they go against that? And you've got five teams in California playing baseball between the A's, the Angels, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Padres. So let's see what baseball comes up with. All right, so I'm off my soapbox now. It is Three Dog Thursday. It is time to get to the guests. I look forward to that. Let's get rolling uh, here. Uh, Brian Edwards up straight ahead. In a little bit, we will hear from Luke Easterling of DraftWire, Chris Giannini of Winning Cures Everything. Let's get rolling here on the show. Lots of draft talk and much more. He is leading things off. He is checking the lists. Uh, up and down for all the NFL teams and the draft grades and the analysis. I love the insight from Vegas Insider and obviously MajorWager.com. Here he is, Brian Edwards, back with me on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Very interesting draft uh, that just took place. First of all, how are you as we're coming down the home stretch of April here and about to head to May? How are things? Social distancing? Isolation? You've been around some of your relatives as well to check on them. How are things, Brian?
2: Doing great, man. We had four days in a row of sports, Thursday, Friday, Saturday draft, and then Sunday last dance. I mean, we had four days in a row, (laughs) which seemed like heaven, man. And uh, now we got some UFC May 9th, 13th and 16th in Jacksonville. So a few things to look forward to. So doing good.
0: Yeah, and you are going to talk some UFC with us in a little bit in this conversation uh, hey, and I, I said this just before you came on, but I'll let you have the floor here for all the talk about the NFL shouldn't have been holding the draft. Uh, it was tremendous uh, content, uh, a, gr- a great distraction. Uh, and the NFL deserves a lot of credit. Those are my thoughts. That's what I I'm reiterating what I've just said before you've come on. What are your thoughts on them pulling that off digitally from a bunch of different remote locations and ESPN? Uh, producing it and pulling it off. What are your thoughts, Brian, on what we saw?
2: Absolutely. There was no risk or threat of anyone, you know, you know, non-social distancing. It seemed to go off with without a hitch for the most part. Um, I thought it was a great job by ESPN, great job by the NFL sticking to it. I mean, their off-season free agency and their draft have been like, you know the only stories to keep sports media really you know having something to do during this time so props to them and, and there was no danger for anybody i thought they did a great job i i'll have, if i have one little flaw a little too heavy on the death narrative. I mean, I know every draftee has lost a grandfather or a father. Yes. A little too much on that, but that would be my only quibble, if you will. I, I, I don't I don't
0: yeah, I, I don't get where that suddenly became because it's only suddenly, where it suddenly had to be I mean, it, it would be one thing if that family member had recently Died just before the draft, or heaven forbid, awful if the coronavirus had taken a family. Okay, but when they and they did apologize, but it's horrible when they put up on the graphic as T. Higgins is being drafted, mother has had a 30 year battle with substance abuse. Whoever did that should be reprimanded and told if you ever do anything like that again, you're not going to have a job. I mean, that why, why does that need to, on, on the moment that he's becoming an NFL player, do we need to air the dirty laundry about, you know, somebody's relative and drug problems or alcohol problems or something else? It just, it did seem a little over the top. So you bring up a good point on that. So mostly good, maybe a little bit bad. I, I wonder what your sense is who okay, I'll lay it out there to you. Who do you think did well? Who did you think did not do well? And I think you're gonna go with the northern division of, of both the AFC and the NFC on who did well and who did not do well. So what is the Brian Edwards opinion?
2: So yeah, I like the Browns, you know, they get an offensive tackle and Bama's uh, Jedrick Wills uh, in the top ten. I thought Grant Delpit out of LSU had some injury issues last year, but I thought he was you know, one of the best uh, secondary guys in the country in 2018. I thought it was good value. Grant Delpit from LSU, round two at number 44. I think he's a first-round talent. Nearly all the Kuypers, McShays, draft Knicks, et cetera, almost all of them had tight end out of FAU Harrison Bryant as the best tight end in the draft and a number of tight ends went ahead of him, and the Browns got good fourth-round value with him. And Michigan wide receiver Donovan Peoples-Jones was a big-time recruit, probably went pro a year early, but for a sixth-round pick, I think he's got good potential. I like what the Browns did. I like what the Ravens did. Love Patrick Queen, the versatile linebacker out of LSU. They got late first round. They get J.K. Dobbins. In round two, I know the SMU wide receiver James James Proch has had some injury concerns, but he was a very, very productive conference or AAC wide receiver uh, for for the Mustangs during his collegiate career. And pretty good uh, uh, productive college safety late, uh, you know, in round seven in Geno Stone out of Iowa. So I like what the Ravens did.
0: More with Brian Edwards in a moment. A reminder, Three Dog Thursday is brought to you by our friends at ConfectionistBakeryATL.com. My buddy Monty Garcon in Atlanta was a guest on the show last week. And he is a tremendous cake baker. You want to help out a small business and do yourself a favor for mom on Mother's Day, we've got a great Mother's Day offer. First, check out Monty's fantastic cakes. All different flavors, in particular his pound cakes, but all kinds of different cakes to ship them anywhere around the country, particularly to mom in and around Mother's Day. Uh, take advantage of this right now for the next couple of weeks. And his small business has got great pricing uh, as it is, but now we've got a discount uh, as well. But go check out the selection of all the different flavored pound cakes. He's got these cake bonds that are very similar to like a cupcake uh, that have different flavors from uh, red velvet to dark chocolate. Oh, I, I can't wait to get my hands on some of these desserts myself. And again, if you've got a wife, if you've got a mom, if you've got an aunt, anybody that's a mom that's a Relative of yours, friends, you don't know what to do, take advantage of what they have at confectionistbakeryatl.com. You get the full cake selection there. Uh, Check them out, go into the checkout. And again, you're going to save with a special Mother's Day offer from us on Three Dog Thursday. The Mother's Day offer is 15% off. And that's just with the promo code MOM. Use MOM for Mother's Day, M-O-M, and you want to get these cakes ordered up. uh, before we we got a couple of weeks left for Mother's Day. The deadline is going to be Monday, May the 4th, but get the order in now. Get this thing shipped to mom even in advance of Mother's Day, but definitely get it in. Monday, May 4th is the deadline, so he can get the cake to mom by Sunday the 10th for Mother's Day. These ship anywhere in the country. They're deliciously flavored full cakes or even the smaller pound cakes. Send them along. Again, Confectionist Bakery ATL for Atlanta. All one thing. Confectionist, C-O-N-F-E-C-T-I-S-T. Confectionist Bakery, B-A-K-E-R-Y-A-T-L for Atlanta.com and the special Mother's Day offer at checkout. The coupon code is MOM, 15% off your order. Order up the cakes, the cake bonds, send them to mom, send them to grandma, send them to other relatives, other friends. It's Confectionist Bakery ATL. They are proud sponsors here on Three Dog Thursday. But on the flip side, there were a couple of NFC North teams that you and a lot of other people are saying, what are they doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, Green Bay... You you're <laughs> off a thirteen and three season. You know you're ready to be a Super Bowl, you know team, and you take a quarterback in round one. I mean, I guess circle of life. What comes around goes around. But to hell with all that. I mean, so <laughs> what? then if if you did that to Brett Favre with Aaron Rodgers, you don't got to do it with, to Aaron Rodgers and. They traded up four spots and gave up a fourth-round pick to get Jordan Love, who I'm not sure is the fourth-best QB in the draft. Anyway, I do love A.J. Dillon, the running back, uh, in the second round, but they didn't address the O-line until the sixth round. And Bob McGinn, the longtime beat writer, he's now with the Athletic. Uh, You know, he's saying that um, LaFleur is – Hired uh, of Rodgers. I I read that.
0: Okay, so let's stop on that. I read that, and I thought first-year coach that has almost no pedigree, first-year completed coach that has almost no pedigree, the the, the coaches rarely, uh, almost never win any of these battles with the star players. Uh, Even with the success that Mike McCarthy had, he eventually got run out of there a year and a half ago because he wasn't getting along anymore with Aaron Rodgers. If if you are LaFleur and even if you are thinking that, you, that you're over the diva stuff with Aaron Rodgers, why are you letting that get out there? Because more than likely, it's going to come down to a him or me thing. And the coach almost never wins that, Brian Edwards.
2: And... They uh, have to take an unfathomable salary cap hit yes. if they get rid of him. Uh, you know, before the next. Two, I mean, they are stuck with him. I mean, not stuck. They're lucky to have him. It <laughs> shouldn't be the narrative. Um, they've got him two more years, whether they get along or not. So why? I, I don't. I just. I don't get it. And then the Bears. I mean, they <laughs> overpaid for past his prime, Jimmy Graham. It, well, that was a bad enough move. And then you don't have a first-round pick, and you're using your second-round pick on a Notre Dame tied in who many did not have rank, ranked as the top two or three tied in in the draft. And um, I did like their second-round pick, Jalen Johnson, a quarterback out of Utah, and I liked their round five, two-lane two wide receiver, Darnell Mooney. But I hated all their other picks. I, I don't know what the Bears – were thinking the dude, bears have
0: nine tight ends now as part of their roster with the rookies and with all the uh undrafted free agents and everything that they have nine La- last i checked about the most that you would play would be three at one time so you don't really need nine i don't th- I, i'm just doing the math brian edwards being facetious i don't <laughs> think you need nine of them sure. so it's kind of and they didn't have a first round pick uh, there's all this up in the air about Trubisky and whether Nick Foles, who they traded with Jacksonville, is going to actually overtake him. And of course, Trubisky is the former number two overall pick that they gave up a number one pick to move up one slot for. So, yeah, a lot of this is uh, is not making sense. I- I'm curious. You're the first one that's going to address this. The Raiders the now Las Vegas Raiders with Mike Mayock and John Gruden. They take Henry Ruggs in the first round, but then they go ahead and take two more wide receivers later, three wide receivers in the first four or five rounds of the draft. What's going on with the Raiders real quick?
2: Well, I like all three of the wide receivers. Now, a lot of people had a C.D. Lamb and Judy uh, ranked Ahead of rugs but you know the Raiders going back to Al Davis and I'm sure Mark Davis pushes the same thing you know he was always a speed guy he always wanted the fastest guy and I love the highlight clips of rugs who's five eleven all the sick dunks from high school in Montgomery um I you know that's true to their form they just take the fastest guy so let's we'll see how it works out um as for Bowden out of Kentucky, I'm okay. And I love Brian. Mama can't spell Edwards out of South Carolina as well, but Bowden can do different things. He can be it can return uh, punts and kicks. Uh, he played quarterback at Kentucky most of last yep. year, so he can give you he can do a little wildcat formation on short yardage or goal line. Uh, he can line up a running back occasionally. He can run a trick play, throwing the ball. So Bowden is a versatile guy, and then I love Brian Edwards. Um, that spells it with a Y out of South Carolina. <laughs> and, and then I also like their quarterback, uh, L- LaTex, Meek Robertson, uh, multi-all-conference USA. Uh, he's, he's a really good uh, playmaker uh, from out of La Tech, And then, you know, I like my guy C.J. Henderson. Um, occasionally misses some tackles, but is as good as there is in coverage. And, and you need lockdown corners. And, uh, you know, Jerry Judy to Denver. Um, you know there's some good yeah interesting interesting you had
0: theorized a couple of weeks ago that judy might be the first receiver taken it was an excellent prop uh favoring the underdog it turns out it was his teammate henry ruggs that was taken first but judy was taken right after that and kind of surprising that like t higgins justin jefferson they were left waiting in that opening round of the it surprised me a little bit uh there brian that they were left waiting in the in the receivers that were being taken in the first round
2: Yeah, uh, Jefferson went to the Eagles, correct?
0: I believe so, yes. I'll Uh, double-check on that.
2: I'm looking that up right now. Um, Oh, no, I think I'm... No, I'm wrong on that. They took Regor for... Actually, he went to the Vikings. Justin Jefferson did go
0: go first round, but he went after C.D. Lamb. He went after Jerry Judy. He went after Henry Ruggs. So, just interesting, the national championship wide receiver on that. And then Arizona State... Uh, with kind of a John Lynch, Herman Edwards connection because their best buds, uh, Brandon Ayuk, ends up going to San Francisco there in that first round. I, I was surprised that T. Higgins didn't go off the uh, off the national championship contending Clemson Tigers. And with all their history of wide receivers doing well in the NFL in the last 10 years, the T. Higgins lasted the second round. So receiver, very deep position. Uh, that's for sure and you had also talked about the under over on quarterbacks did it surprise you as it did me on draft night I was on the air on the Buccaneers radio coverage and we kept saying is somebody at the end of this first round going to trade back into the first round to go get Jalen Hurts go get Jake Fromm go get one of the quarterbacks it surprised me after Green Bay took love that nobody did that how surprised were you uh, Brian that there wasn't a fifth quarterback late in the first round
2: A little surprise. Uh, A little surprise, New England, um, you know, once Fromm had drifted, you know, third, fourth round, I was thinking, man, New England's going to trade up and get him any time now. And then he ends up going to Buffalo, which, you know, with the winds in Orchard Park, might not be a good fit because Fromm doesn't have the, the, you know, super strong... NFL arm but Josh Allen is a guy that runs the ball a lot and puts himself in harm's way and that's a team with a great defense so if Allen gets hurt I, I, I obviously I missed out on the under on Fromm, but I still think he's as mentally ready you know he had the second best wonder lick, uh, of all the quarterbacks at 35 I think he's as mentally ready to start as a rookie and if Allen gets hurt um, I think Buffalo would be just fine uh, with, with Jake Fromm, so he he falls all the way to the fifth round. But don't don't count his NFL career out. Don't count his rookie year out. I think he could still be a factor as a
1: rookie. We'll see.
0: Voice of Brian Edwards with an I, not the Brian Edwards of South Carolina that got drafted by uh, the Raiders. Love his insight. Follow him at Vegas B Edwards. On social media, uh, as he joins me here on Three Dog Thursday. Also, majorwager.com. You read his writings on uh, Vegas Insider, including UFC previews that we'll get to uh, here in a couple of moments. Hey, just a quick one for you moving off of, of the actual draft and to the college football season. There's a lot of talk. And again, at the time that we're taping for Three Dog Thursday, we're at the end of April. We don't, I keep saying this, we'll keep saying it. We don't know June, Brian. We don't know August yet. So how anybody is telling us what is or isn't going to happen in September, October, November, December... Uh, but it is interesting that more and more schools are now saying, hey, we're going to open our campuses for the fall. I know that Kentucky Athletic Director Mitch Barnhart, uh, in an email that was received by, by some media members, notified their donors, their season ticket holders, we believe we will play football in the fall. He didn't go so far as to say with fans, but he is saying to them, we believe we're going to play in the fall So there is some hope. There is some optimism here that they will get it together for the college football season, much like the NFL is planning to play. And we got to let this play out over the next few weeks, couple of months to see where we are.
2: Yeah. And let's see how, you know, from everything I've read, and I'm not super duper, I get tired of watching the news, but uh, it seems like they're, you know, they're not positive how much the heat is going to impact. So you know it's going to be interesting in june and july when it's just hot as hell everywhere yeah. especially in florida if that has hopefully a bigger impact on killing the virus and yeah so i think it's all just a little premature let's we'll see where we're at in june um and hopefully the heat will 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 Help us flatten the curve. We'll
0: see. Yes, and and we should say, now that we're all basically in the seventh week, either the sixth or the seventh week of social distancing and isolation, that it has worked in stopping the spread. The surge—I'm going to say this again, over and over again. The surges that were being predicted in March— never happened anywhere other than New York. It's awful what's going on in and around New York City. I know I have friends, I have colleagues in New York City. It's awful there. But virtually everywhere else, there are no surges here with this. So we have to be careful from week to week and and, and even trying to project a month from now or two months from now Because all the modeling and the projections that told us about how awful this was going to be nationwide were W-R-O-N-G wrong. And that's why we have to take this one step at a time that that, uh, have some optimism that we can get back to some normalcy, get back to employment uh, and all those things, including football, uh, sports as a distraction, those kind of things in steps. When it's reasonable. Speaking of that, here's the segue to UFC. So we're going to flip the calendar to May here uh, this weekend, and the UFC pay-per-views and fights from Dana White we now know are coming, and they're coming in Florida, not an island in California, but coming in Florida. Give me a little insight here because he's going to do multiple shows uh, coming up, and I know you got a couple of other questions as well. But what what about this, Brian? As as the UFC will be one of the first sports. Uh, to get back here in, in America and at least have these uh, fight cards, these pay-per-views without fans present.
2: Yeah, May 9th, there's a stacked UFC 249 card, one of the best cards you know on paper that I've ever laid eyes on. It's going to be in Jacksonville, no fans, Veteran Memorial Coliseum. And then they're going to do a midweek show May 13th, and then do another show the next Saturday, May 16th. So three shows in Jacksonville, um, the the cards for May thirteenth and sixteenth there's some rumors on which fights there are, but nothing officially announced, but that should be happening in the next three or four days, I would think. and uh the Fight Island is gonna be ready in June with the octagon on the beach and <laughs> then I have a question for you, so the the headliner. Uh, that was going to be the headliner a few weeks ago when that got canceled is Justin Gaethje against Tony Ferguson. And Tony Ferguson, I know with all your experience in boxing and, and weight cuts, so uh, Ferguson never misses weight. He is his cardio is endless. That's one of his strengths. So just for just for the hell of it, just to prove a point or for whatever reason. You know, it got canceled nine days out. Well, he said that week he was going to make weight anyway, and he dropped all the way to 155, got on the scale Friday like he would have been done if, doing if the show had gone on, and cut that weight. And Gaethje didn't do it, of course not. And a lot of you were speculating, is it good or bad? Because he's got to do it all over again, May night. I'm wanting your thoughts. I mean, have you ever heard of a boxer doing anything like that and so, an extreme weight cut, and then you got to do it again three weeks right. later? Right,
0: and that and that is dangerous uh, from a health standpoint and from a fatigue standpoint in your body and your system. So he cut from what down to one, one, 155, right, or 150? He cut from so what he, to what? He,
2: yeah, he always he always fights 155. He never has problems making weight, but, I mean, I'm pretty sure he walks around – at you know 170 ish, and I think he was 167 uh, eight or nine days out when he started tweeting that he's going to make weight just to prove a point. So he did cut like 12 pounds in like a week, um,
0: which is dangerous. I, you know, I don't know which much, is which is very yeah. dangerous. And what boxing has begun to do, and I don't know how much uh, Dana White is doing this, or Ultimate Fighting, or MMA is monitoring this with the different commissions, is they basically. Uh, have in the agreements now that the fighter has to be around the weight somewhere around the 30-day mark or the 21-day mark and certainly by the seven-day mark before the fight for safety and then they're weighed at the weigh-in and then they're usually weighed again in boxing circles on the day of the fight to make sure that you don't have Too much fluctuation in in losing 15 pounds, let's say, in a couple of weeks, like what you're talking about, and putting it right back on because it can be dangerous. So boxing has begun to monitor this more. I don't know how much uh, Dana White, the UFC, and MMA do this. But you do you do raise a there, concerning point about him. If he went back up around 170 pounds last week, this week, because he's eating, and now he's going to cut and it's May the 9th or it's the following week for, for the for the May 9th. He'll have
2: to make weight again May 8th. The
0: so he's probably in the process right now this week of trying to cut weight. It can be a very dangerous thing. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert. But when you start sure. talking about fatigue into a second round, a third round of a UFC fight, that, that's where your system goes into distress, too, from having done So they've got to monitor. You bring up a good point. they got to monitor what he's been doing with cutting weight.
2: Yeah, they have been talking about making fighters be partially the, the way toward their cut seven days out when they arrive for fight week. Yes. I know there's been conversation about that. I don't think they've officially made that a uh, bylaw rule what have you yet but there has been a lot of conversation with that in UFC but nothing nothing strict uh, they nev- not, haven't made it to be an exact rule yet but they're working toward that I think
0: all right and and you've got a couple of underdogs that you like for these fight cards give me a name or two that the fans can be aware of when these fights come off just give me a name or two uh, uh, yeah yeah
2: yeah, Jeremy Stevens, plus 200, knockout artist against Calvin Qatar. I think Nico Price has got a good shot at plus 215. And I think the heavyweight, J- Duranzu, uh Rosenstrike, and around plus 250 against Francis Ngannou. And that's a fight I'm going to really like the under, but we can talk about that more. As it gets closer, those heavyweights, somebody's putting somebody to sleep in round one, and it's a great card. We'll talk more about it next week.
0: No but there, doubt.
2: Are, there are quite a few intriguing dogs on this card, and I'll name some more next well, and
0: belie- week. And believe me, there are a bunch of fans that may be casual fans that are going to suddenly find this because it's programming, just like the NFL draft. They had nearly 16 million people uh, with the over-the-air and streaming on the... Uh, NFL and watch ESPN app and anywhere you could stream the draft watch a draft, which was not a game, which was not a sport it was not. the, it was the draft so uh, you can bet that that's going to translate uh, into some of these other sports that are starting up, including golf later in the summer and maybe we get a baseball season started, we'll find out. You can read more all about the UFC stuff in particular the post-draft analysis, all of this on MajorWager.com. Brian Edwards tell them more about where they find your stuff your insight, your analysis, sir.
2: Yeah, well, I'll be giving away some picks with you guys uh, just now and next week, but also we'll have some UFC picks for sale on VegasInsider.com for UFC 249. You can follow me on Twitter at VegasB Edwards and uh, the Major Wager Twitter account. Give that a follow, at MajorWagerUdo. TJ, always fun. Another three-dog Thursday. Thanks for having me, my man.
0: Still to come, lots of NFL draft conversation, both Luke Easterling of DraftWire.com, the USA Today draft site, uh, draft site and Chris Giannini will be here from the Winning Cures Everything podcast with he and Gary Seegers. They do a great job. Lots of conversation about the NFL draft, the wrap-up to it, and much more on the way. Hey, reminder, Three Dog Thursday brought to you in part by MyBookie.ag. Look, there's no sports on TV right now. Now, we do have the NFL draft that is ongoing, and we hope that we're going to get some brand new stuff with some baseball maybe starting up or some basketball or hockey playoffs in the summer, the PGA Tour, et cetera. Well, you can bet on all of it when that comes around on MyBookie.ag. But for right now, what do you have? Well, what you have is the opportunity to bet on some simulated sports. If you got that itch, you can get it scratched and win some cash. And it's not just 2K either. They've got lines and odds on NFL Madden games, the NFL, the NBA, and more. With a slate of games every few hours from noon to midnight, every day of the week, you can bet on these different simulations. Again, if you got to scratch that itch, it's mybookie.ag. And if you want to get in on some blackjack, they've got the free-to-enter $10,000 blackjack tournament going. On right now, get in there. Uh, even though the casinos may be shut down in Vegas and in other places, you can get in on my bookie's own uh, blackjack tournament game that they have going on right now. Go to mybookie.ag, sign up, use the promo code SGP. Go do this now. Sign up, and again, you can get up to a thousand dollar match with my bookie with that promo code. Again, SGP is the promo code. Again, you bet. You win, you get paid with mybookie.ag. We're also brought to you in part by Ace Per Head. Ace is the leader in pay-per-head providers, and they make it super easy to start your own sportsbook. Plus, Ace is offering up to six weeks free over at aceperhead.com SGP. That's aceperhead.com SGP. And three dog Thursday is brought to you in part by the Madden Mayhem tournament that's going on right now. The guys with the sports gambling podcast have got their simulation tournament with the Madden football game online. This is a follow up to that whole DGen Madness that was so successful for the NCAA tournament. And right now, the guys are giving away ten thousand dollars in my bookie credits. For the best brackets on the Madden simulation, just go to sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden to see the brackets and to see what's going on there. Get the bracket in before the first games get rolling on Thursday night at 8 Eastern time. So if you're hearing us on Three Dog Thursday, get in on the bracket contest for the MyBookie credits before 8 Eastern time. Go to sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden for the details on Madden mayhem.
1: Dogs are barking. Who will get it done this week? Three Dog Thursday
0: now continues. Here again is TJ Reeves. We continue along. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I do not believe that Luke Easterling has been a guest yet on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. I believe this is rookie territory, although there will be no hazing. Um, I, I always love the insight from people that have great insight. On a certain subject, and if you're talking NFL Draft, this guy's on it. Capital O, capital N, like all bold. On it with an exclamation point. What's happening, Venus? What's happening, uh, Luke Easterling? It's good to have you here on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Talk a little NFL Draft.
3: It's my pleasure, man. Glad to uh, to finally uh, smash that bottle of wine on, on this podcast appearance.
0: Let's do it. Uh, let's let's do it is right. All right, who did it well is, is a common theme right now. We don't know until the games are played, and it maybe even takes a couple, three years to figure out uh, who did really well in a certain draft. But with what we have on paper, having watched this last weekend, if I say to you, give me a team or two that did well, you would say to me...
3: Uh, You know, as much as it pains anybody who's not a Cowboys fan to say that the Cowboys did something (laughs) well, uh, I gave out one A-plus grade, and it was to Jerry Jones. I think they should just keep him in the yacht for every draft, maybe even the games. Maybe it'll translate to on-field performance if they just keep him in the yacht for for everything. Because they knocked this draft out of the park, man. They got CeeDee Lamb, who was a top-ten overall player in this draft. They got him at 17. Von Diggs, who is the perfect corner skill set-wise to replace Byron Jones. He could have easily gone in the first round. He went at 51 more than halfway through the second round. I love Neville Gallimore, the defensive tackle from Oklahoma they got, was a, a great player at the Senior Bowl. Uh, and then even on day three, uh, they got some great value. Tyre, Ty, Tyler, however in the world you pronounce his name, Beatus, um from Wisconsin, can play center and guard, obviously with uh, you know the concerns they have there and their depth. Uh, along the offensive line he's a big addition um anybody anybody who blocked at wisconsin should be on anybody's radar so uh and then bradley and a, the the edge player from utah pass rusher went in the fifth round I, I thought he could have gone a couple of rounds before that another guy that played really well at the senior bowl so um dallas did really well as much as none of us want to admit it and then the minnesota vikings started really strong their first round they got justin jefferson the wide receiver from lsu who should have gone to pick before to the philadelphia eagles at 21 they took Jalen Reger, a different receiver, and somehow getting Jefferson as the fifth receiver off the board I thought was great. And then they moved back from 25 to 31, got extra picks, and still ended up with Jeff Gladney, one of the most physical, confident corners in this draft. And again, I don't think there was a more disappointing unit in the entire NFL last year than the Minnesota secondary, you know, when you compare their expectations of what they're capable of with, with how they performed. And they gutted that unit. They, they made a lot of changes there, and they added a bunch of corners. I think they drafted three corners in this draft. I got mm. Cam Dancler from Mississippi State, who is is a little thin, but he's he's got long arms. He's a really tall guy. Was really the only guy who shut down Jamar Chase from LSU last year. He didn't give up fifty yards to any receiver last season while playing in the SEC. And you know the talent they had at receiver in that conference last year. So really love what the Cowboys did. Really love what the Vikings did. Um I, I think a lot of teams did really, really well it's really only a few teams that, that left me scratching my head.
0: Okay, so I'm just seeing this because I didn't pay particular attention to the Saturday uh, draft and all the. Uh, did the Vikings have 601 picks? How many picks did the Vikings have? Because I'm looking at two in the fifth round, right? Two in the sixth round, four more in the seventh round. Oh, and the three in the, in the fourth round. The Vikings picked like 91 times on Saturday with all these players.
3: Yeah, when after all the trades were done on day 2, they had 13 picks going into day 3 um, <laughs> in a 7-round I mean, draft. A lot to have it, 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 right, right,
0: right right because right, they right. used to have a 13-round draft where you'd have 13 picks, but 13 picks in a 7-round draft, that's pretty hard to top.
3: That's what happens to me in like season 4 of a Madden franchise. Like I've traded for that many picks and I'm just rebuilding a roster that's easily up. The only place you'll find that is in the video game.
0: I love the insight from Luke Easterling. By the way, follow him at Luke Easterling. He's part of the Draft Wire uh, USA Today uh, internet chain there in the websites. He is the the editor of Draft Wire and all over it. Um. So uh, I love his insight on this. We will get to some Buccaneer conversation. You guys know, obviously, I'm associated with the Buccaneers Radio Network. Luke writes about the Bucs for Sports Illustrated for SI.com, covering the team. We'll talk a little bit about their draft, but in particular, Jameis Winston to the Saints coming in a couple of moments. Speaking of the, the Bucks and all the, the jokes and punchlines about Tampa Bay or the Gronkineers, the, the name being bandied about and altered because of Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski uh, coming to the Bucks. let's talk about the New England Patriots in this draft specifically. I, I want your thought first before I give you a couple of thoughts. How did you think the Patriots did with what they did? First, they traded out of the first round, and then with what they got after they did that, assess it, Luke.
3: Yeah, it wasn't surprising to see them trade out of the first round. And honestly, it, I like a lot of the guys they drafted, especially early and a couple of guys late. I just, with with everybody who was on the board at each pick, I just wonder if they got the best value for all of those guys. Again, that's highly subjective based on, you know, my own rankings and evaluations. But obviously Bill Belichick has been doing what he's doing a little bit longer than I have, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll concede that. He's a little bit more successful. Um But I love Kyle Duggan, the the safety from Lenore Ryan. This is a guy that had no business playing at the level he did. He should have been in a Power 5 conference, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 220, you know, 4'4", speed, can play safety, can play linebacker. They're going to move him around and and use him in a bunch of different ways, and I think he'll fit really, really well. I love Josh Josh Uche from uh, Michigan, another versatile edge guy uh, that played really well at the Senior Bowl, a little bit undersized, but can drop and cover, can rush the passer, Um, and and just a great – great kid great leader you know waited his turn at, at Michigan wasn't a starter until his senior season and really made the most of it um Anthony Jennings another edge guy this time from Alabama it's just anybody Jennings is one of those guys that you see Alabama guys and you're just like hey he's just going to be a patriot I can feel it he, you know that with some injuries um but a really really tough you know particularly against the run setting that edge for Alabama then it started to get weird you know at the end of the third round They take tight ends back-to-back, trading up for one of them. And they took a couple of guys. I really like Devin Asiasi, and Dalton Keene was like a late 6th or 7th round guy for me. Um, But I just with all the other tight ends that were on the board, there were so many other guys that I thought were worthy of those picks. It's not that I was surprised that they necessarily went tight end back-to-back. It's the guys they took and where they took them, taking them both in the top 100-ish picks. Um, was just really confusing to me. They took a kicker, which obviously makes perfect sense um, with Goskowski moving on. And then, honestly, I thought the best, best picks they made were back-to-back in the sixth round. They took a couple of guards. Mike Onwini from Michigan, Justin Heron from Wake Forest, who played some tackle as well. Um, I think those guys have starter you know, upside, and I think they could end up being the best values they got all day. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it was a strange draft. I think they did get some impact players on defense early. I wonder about those tight ends because of who else was on the board. And honestly, you could say that the biggest impact anybody will have in this draft class is maybe the kicker.
0: Well, and and so you said what you said, and I realize I work for another NFL team. This just smelled to me. Like the whatever draft by New England, uh, when you take tight ends, uh, as you mentioned, four picks or actually ten picks apart in the third round, this is not the 1980s where where we were used to seeing you know great great tight ends uh, affect uh, NFL teams that that made no sense. Uh, To me specifically, but in the bigger picture, it began to make sense. When you take a kicker in the fifth round, when you have a need, obviously, at quarterback, there are still question marks about Jared Stidham. No matter how convinced they are, they could have taken one of the quarterbacks that was still sitting there uh, in the fifth round and did not do it. This just says to me, and, and I may be a lone voice right now, I think there's a few others that may be saying this, this says to me they're planning for an awful season. They are planning to crash it, to be bad. Belichick knows they're going to be bad, and they are gunning for Trevor Lawrence in 2021, this time a year from now, uh, and and to have high draft picks uh, after that. That's, that's what this draft looked like to me, especially when Friday night, we saw, okay, maybe they can go get a quarterback, go get a couple of skill guys that could maybe help them on, a, on a, uh, an offense that is obviously challenged with skill players. No, let's go draft two tight ends, and then let's wait on Saturday and go take a kicker before we take some other priorities. I realize you got to have a kicker. Uh, and there's some debate, Luke, and you can speak better maybe to this, that there were better kickers uh, than this Justin Rohrwasser, if I got the name right, from Marshall that they could have taken there's my thoughts on this uh response from you on what on my diatribe
3: yeah i mean particularly with the kicker it was surprising to see you know Tyler Bass from Georgia Southern who was at the senior bowl Rodrigo Blankenship from Georgia who's probably the most well-known kicker in college football he actually went undrafted and that was kind of surprising so yeah i just it's hard to argue in what you say th- what you're thinking there i just think that when you when you look at the fact that those quarterbacks were on the board and they just kept not taking them. They could have had Ethan maybe in the fourth. They could have had um, Jake Fromm from Georgia, who went in the fifth. Um, and they just passed on everybody. You look ahead to next year's class, it's not just Trevor Lawrence. It's Justin Fields from Ohio State. Jamie Newman, who's transferring from Wake Forest to Georgia to replace Jake Fromm. Uh, Trey Lance, who's at North Dakota State and rushed for 1,000 yards last year through 28 touchdown passes, zero interceptions. Mm zero interceptions as a red shirt freshman for North Dakota state. And obviously we can talk about whether or not a North Dakota state guy would go number one or number two. We've already seen it happen with Carson Wentz. There's going to be a lot of quarterbacks not named Trevor Lawrence who are worth taking in the first round next year. I think so. It wouldn't surprise me for that to be the case uh, for, for Bill to just say, well, it, you know, it's over. It was a good run. Let's see if we can get this thing restarted. And is there not a better example of how much they were focused on keeping Tom happy over the last few years and the way they drafted even up to last year, taking Nikhil Harry, a receiver in the first round, and then the first draft after he's gone, they're like, "Oh well,
1: that's over." <laughs> defense, defense,
3: defense. Kicker, true. Tight end, tight true, true. Never mind.
0: Yeah, it's a good point that you that you make. And again, uh, I'm just I'm I'm saying again that you don't want to really be lukewarm next year uh of a five or six or seven win team. I know Miami kind of got away with it after a horrible 0-7 start where they were obviously trading away all of their best players, uh, you know, getting rid of Laramie Tunsell, Kenny Stills, Minka Fitzpatrick, and Kenyon Drake, all Starting players, all top-notch type players, getting rid of all of them. It was clear what the Dolphins were doing last year in the, uh, in the process of being awful. Then they then they turn around and win some games, which had their fan base going crazy at the end of the season after being 0-7. If I'm a Patriot fan and you're going to be bad, you want to be awful for next year and have it only be a one-year thing to then be able to reload uh, at the top of drafts and get the quarterback, etc. It just that's just what occurred to me. Again, I'm repeating what I what I just said that that this looks like we're planning for 2021 and we may be three and 13 bad next year in New England. And by the way, for those that don't think that it can happen, it, it happens to almost every team that goes through some part of a teardown. You you more than likely are going to have a bad year or maybe two or three awful years. Look at Denver, Luke. That's had three losing seasons. Seasons in a row now under John Elway, uh, they they are now scrambling. They did pretty well with some of the receivers they got and offensive line help they got, but they're trying to figure it out after being so good uh, for so long. But you you, you generally uh, are going to have to go through an awful season uh, to try to restructure and, and figure it all out, and maybe that's what New England is about to do. I, I know there are a lot of people that believe they're going to be a 10- or 11-win team. With Stidham and or Brian Hoyer at quarterback and with what they have, I'm just not buying it here in April. I I will have to be proven wrong that it's not going to be like 3-13, and and 4-12, 2-14 bad next year in New England. Uh, We'll see. We'll see what what they end up doing. Uh, Because again, this brings it now to the Buccaneer part, part of the conversation, Luke Easterling, is that Tom Brady was the guy that held a lot of that together and covered up a lot of the ills and a lot of the shortcomings, and he's not there anymore. So... The quarterback can mask it and can be worth numerous wins by masking it. So we'll, uh, we will see. All right. So that segues, you also write uh, for uh, Sports Illustrated and, and the Buccaneer coverage for SI.com. Uh, so give me a thought real quick on the, on the buck moves and the drafting of uh, Tristan Wirfs, the offensive lineman, and what else they got later on. What's your assessment here as covering the team? Well,
3: yeah. And, and real quick, just to finish what you said about yeah. the Patriots, it's, it's really hard to win in the NFL, TJ. It's, it, and, and when you win so often for so long, like the Patriots have for the last 20 years, it's really easy to forget that. And when you're in Tampa and you haven't, been, you haven't won <laughs> a playoff game in nearly 20 years, it's hard to forget that because you see it all the time. So you know, Patriots fans, I think, are in for a rude awakening and understanding just how difficult it is to win on a week-to-week and year-to-year basis in this league and I think Bucks fans are hoping that they're about to find yeah. out just how much of a difference one guy can, can make. And, and, and let's not get it twisted. The, the only reason that Tom Brady is in Tampa Bay right now is because this roster that has been built by a general manager that has taken tons of criticism, and rightfully so, he'll tell you that himself, but this team is built on both sides of the ball to go to the Super Bowl. They, they already are, and Tom Brady picked Tampa Bay for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest ones is that this roster is is built to win right now, and the biggest thing that was holding them back was taking care of the football on offense. They had tons of yards, tons of points. They had all the talent in the world, and Jameis Winston was a big part of that talent as well. I don't want to discount the positive things that he did, but when you turn the ball over as many times as that offense did and you put your defense out there on the field, especially early in the season, they were starting six rookies on defense, TJ, like, there's no way to win games that way. So just going from a guy who threw 30 interceptions last year to a guy who's thrown 29 interceptions the last four seasons combined, which is what Tom Brady's done, <laughs> that alone puts this team in Super Bowl contention because the rest of the roster is there. So when you talk about the fact that that's the case, you look for, you look for the needs. Where were the glaring needs for the Bucks heading into this draft? There was very few teams, if you look around the league, like, oh, this is absolutely the thing they need in the first round. I don't think anybody's biggest need was as big or bigger than the Bucks needing a right tackle who can come in and start right away. They got that guy in Tristan Wirfs. I had him mocked at the end to, to the Giants at number four, and there are definitely teams across the league that would have been comfortable with taking him in the top five. That's how closely graded I think those top four tackles were in this draft. Andrew Thomas from Georgia. Jedrick Wills from Alabama, Mackay Becton from, uh, from Louisville. Those guys were so tightly graded that just depending on a, a tweak here and there for each team and the way they fit, whether they needed a left tackle or a right tackle, that's what allowed you. You knew one of those four was probably going to get close to 14 where the books were, but the, the bucks, listen, giving up a fourth round pick, it hurts. You need other things. It's, it's a, you know, a fairly premium pick right there at the, at the middle rounds. Um, but they knew things that we necessarily didn't at the time. We didn't necessarily know that Joe Staley was, was about to retire. The 49ers knew right. that, and the Bucks knew that, so they were concerned that not, not necessarily that someone would jump up ahead of them, which was part of it, obviously, and that's what, when I saw them trade up one spot and give up a fourth-round pick. That told me Jason Light knows that somebody is, is trying to come up and get his guy, and he's not going to let it happen because the, the, fall, the, the, the fall from Tristan Wurst and the top of that tackle class to the rest of the tackle class was a, a, a huge cliff. So he's not going to let that happen. He gave up what he had to to go get his guy. But it was also because he was worried about the 49ers taking their guy too. So, you, listen, when you're need, when you so close and your window is opening the way it is for the Bucks right now because of the additions they've made in the offseason, you cannot let a fourth-round pick be the reason you didn't make that move that you needed to. So he was aggressive. No risk it, no biscuit. He went and got it. <laughs> and Tristan Wirfs is exactly the kind of player they need at the position they needed the most. And that's when you start your draft that way. It's so much easier going into day two knowing, okay, I can breathe a little bit. We've got our guy at the most important position of need. Now, what do we need? Now you can be comfortable and let the board come to you, which is exactly what the Bucks did. You know, did they need a safety as much as they maybe needed a, a, a top running back to go with Ronald Jones? You can catch the ball, maybe another receiver, maybe not. But Antoine Winfield was the number 25 player in this draft, in my opinion. That was, that was where he was on my board. They got him at number 45 overall. And his skill set is such a perfect fit for Todd Bowles and his defense and what he wants to do. He can play linebacker, safety. He can play in the slot. He can play in the box. He can play single high uh, over the top of the defense as a free safety. He can do so many different things. And I have to believe that Todd Bowles is so excited to be able to play with a guy like that. And the
0: pedigree, that dad playing at a very high level, very high level uh in the NFL including intercepting Tom Brady back in 2001 as a player and now Brady's on the team with his son uh 19 years later so that's uh that's incredible in that part of it and and back to your point about the trade I thought it was fascinating Peter King's uh inside look on uh, on his on his column that he does on Pro Football Talk he got to sit right there blow by blow while Jason Light was talking to his guys uh, and trying to make trades, and he got to listen to one-way conversations with Light with other teams, and then Light was relaying what he was offering to other teams. And so when you now find out, Luke, from that article that Jason Light was offering the Las Vegas Raiders and Mike Mayock a fifth-round pick, a sixth-round pick, and to move up in the third round, to swap spots with the Bucks and move up in the third round, to move up two spots... And Mayock didn't want to do that because he wanted Henry Ruggs, the receiver from Alabama. The fact that he only gave up a fourth-round pick on the next pick looks looks like a brilliant chess move that he didn't have to give up as much. Maybe they were really overspending with Mayock to move up the two spots. But it just shows you uh, the high wire act that goes on 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 these draft nights when the team is on the clock, when you're trying to make your decision. Because I think another point here is, just in general, if you're concerned that your guy's going to be taken, you're looking to make moves there. But if you're further concerned that, hey, that was our biggest need and we don't have another glaring need. So in other words, if we don't get this guy, whoever it is, if we don't move up and we don't get this guy – we may be trading down because we don't have another glaring need if it's not him. And like you mentioned, if the tackle position had a big drop-off, then the Bucks may very well, if they had not gotten worse, they may have traded backwards. We don't know. They may have said, we don't have a glaring need. We'll accumulate picks and maybe move back up. That's the fun of this whole thing, right? Real quick.
3: Yeah, it really is. And, and I don't know if you read Mike Silver's piece for NFL.com either. He was embedded with the Jaguars on the other side. And said that, that Jason Light offered a three and a four to yeah. move up to nine to go yeah. get their guy too, which you know, whether or not with that was Tristan Werps or one of the other tackles that was on the board at that time because Wills went 10 and Beckton went 11. Uh, it just shows you how how much they were willing to move up, how much they were willing to give up, like you said, it, it just shows how big of a need they, they saw that. Uh, and how much they were willing to, to give up to make sure they got that guy.
0: Voice of Luke Easterling giving great draft insight. Again, draft wire from the USA Today family of sites and also SI.com and covering the Bucks. And so now we've kind of saved the best part of the conversation for last. All right, so if I was peddling a a make-believe movie script, like the whole draft day thing, to Hollywood, and, and I said the six-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback is going to come to Tampa Bay, uh, pe- people would kind of poo-poo that probably. Oh, and then he's going to talk the Hall of Fame caliber tight end out of the professional wrestling ring and out of retirement to come play with him. Now, Now Hollywood's going, this is silly, this is... But now we add that Jameis Winston, the former quarterback, is going to sign with a division rival and potentially be able to play, depending on Drew Brees' health, against his old team. I mean, this, this is straight out This is straight out of Hollywood. Hollywood casting with doing all of this stuff. What do you make of that decision where Jameis basically acknowledges that the, the only thing I have available to me is a backup role, and I'm going to go be a backup in New Orleans with Peyton, uh, the head coach, with Breeze, the quarterback. What do you make of it, Luke?
3: Stranger than fiction, right? It's, it's one of those things where you could just never imagine this sequence of events uh, even in a movie, like you said, you'd get laughed out of the the room for pitching that. But you know, it it makes sense for for Winston on a bunch of different levels. Yes, there's the the ability to go and and learn behind a, a future full first ballot Hall of Famer in Drew Brees to be part of an offense that's that's a tried and true scheme with Sean Payton, the guy that knows what he's doing, uh, and and where there's just no pressure. There's going to be zero pressure on Jameis Winston to accomplish anything in New Orleans. He's Playing behind a guy who's won Super Bowls there already, there's no need for him. He can literally just go be there, and he's no longer the number one pick franchise quarterback anymore. None of that weight is on him in New Orleans. He gets to go, just soak up knowledge, and and not worry about being the guy. And and there's part of that, you know, especially at that level where your ego has to take that hit, where you have to realize I'm not the starting quarterback, I'm not the guy anymore. And so many guys thrive off that pressure that when it's not there you wonder what will happen but we can't pretend like there's not at least some part of Jameis Winston that is going to New Orleans because of the way he left Tampa Bay and the the opportunity to stay in the division and to potentially get a chance no matter how small to to stick it to them and to get back <laughs> at them for letting him go uh, there's got to be an element of that even if it's schematically even if it's helping out the Saints and understanding what's going to happen on game day when they play each other next year I there's there's no way that's not at least partly yep. uh, influencing this their decision. You know, but can I ask you?
0: I'm going to ask subsequent guests this too on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Do we know right now at the end of April that Jameis Winston's even going to be ahead of Taysom Hill on their draft on their depth chart because Hill just got a a, a lucrative two year deal to remain there. He's been in the system now for a couple of years playing some quarterback. I don't think it's a given that Jameis Winston is the backup quarterback right now on paper. Your opinion, please?
3: No, I, I don't think he is, but I don't think it's that simple, particularly in New Orleans because of Hill's role in that offense. It's, it's a little bit more unique than, say, it would be in Tampa Bay where you've got three quarterbacks whose skill set-wise are basically the same. You've got you know, stand-up right. pocket quarterbacks in Brady and Gabbard and Griffin. There's a, there's a, a, a single style across all of those guys. Taysom Hill is is his own beast. He's his own it's similar to last year. Teddy Bridgewater was technically the the backup, but Taysom Hill was still heavily involved in the offense and doing all of the versatile things that he can do well. So it was hard to say which one of them was necessarily ahead of the other on the depth chart. It's just that Hill's role was a little bit different. Now, with Teddy Bridgewater gone, we all wondered, especially after the contract that Taysom Hill got and the fact that they put a first round tender on him as a restricted free agent you wonder, oh, is this his turn now? He's almost 30 years old. Is he finally going to get a chance to be the the actual backup, the full time? Now you're a quarterback all of the time uh, promotion, but with Winston coming into town, that that kind of makes that still a question to me. If it, you know, if, if Breeze were to go down, do they put all of that on Taysom Hill's shoulders, or would they want to keep him in that role that he's been so effective? as opposed to uh, you know, putting Winston in there. So somebody said, somebody put out the terrible stat that Jameis Winston's completed more passes <laughs> than Saints players than Taysom Hill has in his career so far, which is just terrible. It's terrible for both players. I don't know who that's more of a diss on. Winston himself, uh, for throwing interceptions or Taysom Hill for the fact that he doesn't throw the ball very
0: much. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, but uh, then again, uh, you know, you you have to take the good with the bad. You're at the most scrutinized position in the NFL, and Jameis Winston has more interceptions and more combined turnovers than any other quarterback in the league the last five years. Period. That's not in dispute. That's not anybody's opinion. So you're going to have to take that criticism from every which direction until you demonstrate that you're something other than that. So it's just a fascinating twist to all of this that he now ends up in new orleans i could go on with you for like an hour or for two hours we don't have that time here promise me that we'll get to do this again at some point down the road i look forward to that and please promote where everybody can read you luke easterling where they can find you where they can hear you etc plug away
3: yeah man we'll definitely do this again soon uh just let me know and we'll make it happen you can find all my draft stuff at draftwire.usatoday.com you can find all my Buck stuff at si.com slash NFL slash Buccaneers. Um, yeah, just come find me on Twitter at Luke Easterling. I keep it simple there. So, bucks, draft, no matter what it is. Uh, Let's talk some football, and let's definitely do this again soon.
0: And he has bunches of draft grades out for teams and how they did, and I say this tongue-in-cheek and as facetiously as possible. Just remember, fans, he only hates your team. He doesn't hate every team. He only hates your team with his analysis. Luke will wear that as a badge of honor uh, with all the draft analysis. Great job, my friend, on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Continue to be well. We hope to have some normalcy resuming soon here in May and this summer with life, with sports, with that kind of stuff. Hang in there and Thank you for hanging out with me.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure, TJ. Take care,
0: buddy. It has been a little bit, and I have got to get the insight and the analysis post NFL draft from the guys with Winning Cures Everything. Chris Giannini and Gary Seegers, fantastic work on that podcast and YouTube show, and you see them right now on a regular basis. Uh, through Periscope, through YouTube, and through the podcast at Winning Cures Everything, winningcureseverything.com, et cetera, et cetera. Chris Giannini is here to talk lots and lots of football here on Three Dog Thursday. How have you been? Good to, good to catch up with you. Are we hanging in uh, there in the Giannini household as social distancing uh, rocks on?
1: Yeah, we're doing really well. We're, we're staying sane. I'm fortunate enough to continue to work uh wife is home with the kids and uh it's been so
0: it has been a challenge for all of us uh that is for sure but we're all we're all hanging in there a lot of family bonding and hey let's segue it was an excellent distraction to have reality TV as nearly 16 million people over the air were watching and when you factor in all the streaming on ESPN and nfl.com and elsewhere uh, it was over 16 million that watched on the opening night. some 30 million different people watched at one point or another on the NFL draft, uh, either on TV or online or on an app. Uh, we all gravitated to it. So uh, just as a as a thought from you, how did you think it all came off and how do you think the whole presentation went over the over the three days, Chris? I mean, I thought it was really entertaining.
1: I, I liked it a lot. It was one of the funnest drafts I remember in a long time. And uh, I, I'm trying to put it in perspective and figure out, is it because I've had nothing to watch for so long, it just looks so good in hindsight. I mean, I remember the first girl that ever wanted to go out with me. I thought she was an absolute fox. And then I realized, oh, she's just the only person that likes me. And, and as I got older, I realized that that wasn't that big of a deal. Um, so I, I'm trying to have some perspective, but man, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm glad we had it, and uh, I, I liked it. I liked it a whole lot.
0: And kudos to the NFL and, again, the ESPN and NFL Network people behind the scenes that pulled off dozens and dozens and dozens of video cameras of coaches, GMs, players, uh, all over the place, and and guests and analysts and being able to do that basically flawlessly for three days of television, two nights, and then a Saturday all afternoon and early evening of television, uh, it was fantastic to unfold. All right, so uh, let's segue in. I've been asking other guests th- this; I'll ask you the same. Who do you think did really well in this draft? Who stood out? Give me a team uh, that that you thought did well.
1: You, you know, I thought the Broncos had one of the best drafts of, of, of all of them. I really – I liked what Denver did a lot. They uh, they um, addressed a lot of needs, but I think they got a lot of good value on these guys. And uh, Judy falling to them I thought was just something I never thought was going to happen. And, um, and, and and you know, kind of the on and on as the draft went, um, I, I kind of thought they crushed it. I liked my Browns a whole lot. That shocked me, by the way. They usually don't draft very well, in my opinion, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and you know, I know I've very much disagreed with many of their drafts lately, and, uh, and I, I liked what they did a whole lot. So, But I also kind of went into this draft thinking, I thought this was going to be one of the deepest drafts we've had in a long time. Maybe not elite star players all the time, but I thought you've got a lot of guys that would be second and third round guys in any other draft. And this year, they're going sixth, seventh, fifth round all day long, um, and that was just a credit to the amount of talent, the volume of talent that came out of this draft.
0: Well, and speaking of that, we'll talk about the SEC specifically and the volume of talent and the depth of the SEC players that were taken in just a second. But back to Denver, they grabbed a couple of receivers to complement Cortland Sutton. They got a defensive back from Iowa. They even got the LSU center uh, Lloyd Cushenberry III in the in the third round. Uh, so uh, again, a name by the way, a, a great name.
1: Nobody
0: uh, thinks a football guy. A cushion. Lloyd Lloyd the third sounds like royalty over in the uh, in the British Isles, right? That it should be that absolutely, and not, and not a football absolutely. player. But De- Denver uh, again uh, making mention here. Denver won for so long at such a high level, and they've now had three losing seasons in a row. So they're trying to turn it around. Uh, with the Broncos and with some of the pieces that they currently have. We will find out if they are able to. And, and in the Broncos' uh, case, they went with an SEC guy in the opening round with Jerry Judy from Alabama. It's just it's incredible, Chris, to look at the number of SEC players overall that were taken in the first two or three rounds of the draft. But then to contemplate all of the LSU and Alabama players, the blur of them on the first two nights of the draft, Man, I mean, I I know we're in the South and people get SEC fatigue from hearing about it all the time. But the the NFL basically said to anybody that's paying attention, we value that talent pool and those players more than the other Big 12, ACC, Big 10, Pac-12 American conferences. And and by far, they value those players more. And it was evident again uh, this past weekend.
1: So, I saw a graphic where you could put an entire starting 22 defense and offense together just from LSU and Bama draftees this year, (laughs) and the roster looked pretty loaded. Like, I was like, holy cow. Like, that's an NFL. Five years from now, that team could win a Super Bowl if you could take all those guys and put them on one roster.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, We've seen some incredible things, and uh, again, the SEC continues to dwarf the other conferences in the terms of NFL draft talent um, year after year after year on this. Okay, so a couple of subjects that we've already covered. I want Chris Giannini of the Winning Cures Everything's podcast opinion. I know you're a Patriots uh, guy, and we've already joked around on this show and with you guys when I was on with you and Gary about Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski coming down to Tampa Bay. The New England draft, give me the Giannini assessment of what you thought the Patriots did, because I gave my feelings before you came on, which you didn't really hear, so give me your feelings on how you think the Patriots did. All right,
1: I'll, I'll preface this by saying if you think this draft affects this year, you haven't been watching New England football at all. Rookies just do not matter to Bill Belichick at all. Nikhil Harry is one of the greatest rookies that they've taken, and he was a blip on the radar last year in offense. Um, So I thought it was exactly what I expected from the Patriots. We actually just did our uh, Patriots breakdown of the draft today. We did the uh, AFC East, and um, uh, I I dislike it very much. But it's no different than any other Patriot draft that I've watched the last, I don't know, 10 years that I've watched really closely. Bill Belichick is out to just piss his fans off. He just likes (laughs) to make them mad and, and and. He's going to take players you've never heard of from schools you didn't know existed, and there's no way to get excited about it. If you're excited about these guys, you're just fooling yourself because you didn't know they existed five minutes ago. Right. Um, the best thing was Bill trolling the NFL with his dog, that was you know took over the the, the means of college football and uh, the NFL, and that was that was great. But getting excited about this draft, I got no idea. I you know. All the graph grades show that he reached for every player he took. That's probably true. Um, And the only reason he took them was because he couldn't trade back to take them later. I think he went into this draft thinking I'm going to take these guys. And if I have to take him in the second round, great. If, I can trade back and trade back and take them all in the fourth round. He's happy with that,
0: too. So, Well, back-to-back tight ends in the third round, as we were discussing earlier with Luke Easterling, and then a kicker right after that. To me, again, I wanted your comments first. To me, this just says it's almost like a signal. I, I-, I don't care. We're going to rip the Band-Aid off here, and we can be 3-13 and in 2011. And maybe they'll be a little better oh. than that, but maybe that is what they're going to be. Uh, because we have no idea if Jarrett Stedham's going to be any good or not, but this this almost looked like, hey, we're we're putting some pieces in, but maybe we're going to be horrible this year, and we're gunning for Trevor Lawrence and better draft position next year. That's what it. I mean, in, lo- in watching, it's what it looked like to me. What's your reaction to that?
1: Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something here, and I mean this the only way I know it. Say it. That that couldn't be further from the truth, and you just don't understand Bill Belichick. His concept of tanking does not exist, all right? The, the idea of throwing away a season is not in that man's psyche whatsoever. The other thing is we also have to look at football has two sides of the ball to it, okay? And that other side of the ball, they were the best defense in the league last year for a significant amount of the league all right, of the season. Mm -hmm. They're still good. You and me could go play quarterback tomorrow for them, I think that team could win eight games. Because they're not going to give up points to half the teams in the league. The quarterback play on a lot of these teams on their schedule this year are not good, all right? And and Buffalo Bills, I like the Buffalo Bills a lot. I think they are building something great. If Josh Allen comes to New England, he ain't scoring a point, okay? He's just not. (laughs) So at some point in time, you've got to figure out a way to put points on the board or you can't win, and I truly believe that the Patriots are gonna be eight, eight, ten win season with Jared Sidham as a quarterback. That is not a fandom, that is not a homer. That is the other side of the ball is scary good.
0: I think they're good and their
1: offense last year wasn't good anyway. With yeah. Tom Brady. Their offense was not right, good, but so they had. Do we think they're going
0: to be? They had the Hall of Famer to mask some of that, is part of my point from mm-hmm. earlier. And the defense was good to a point, but the defense began to leak and have problems as the year went on. And I know I'm, I'm drumming up bad memories. When you let Ryan Fitzpatrick drive the length of the field in the final two minutes in your house with everything on the line, costing you a bye week, costing you the number 2 seed, uh, and you never recovered from that moment in Week 17, and it it continued with the Tennessee game the following weekend. Uh, I'm just uh, you know, well, I'm putting it out there that it it would not surprise me here if this is take a bad season in order to reload with a much better quarterback. Uh, for next year than what he was going to get at the end of the first round, etc. We'll, we'll see. We'll find out uh, if that's any good. So that's that's what makes all of this fun with the debates. Chris Giannini with me for a few more moments. Winning Cures Everything podcast, he and Gary Seegers. Uh, again, you can follow him at Chris B. Giannini, Christopher B. Giannini on Twitter. Uh, and uh, find them at winningcureseverything.com, at winningcures on social media. Jameis Winston has been a hot topic in my market on this show you guys were talking about this we now know he goes to the New Orleans Saints give me your thoughts now that we know it's a one-year deal for very little money and we're not even sure the hierarchy and we're not even sure Chris on that point if it's the hierarchy that Taysom Hill got much more money and he's the backup we don't know that right now in April what are your thoughts
1: so I think this is a good landing spot for Jameis, but I, everyone thinks that Sean Payton is just going to fix him because Sean Payton is an offensive genius. I believe that Sean is an offensive genius. But I also am a guy that has believed in Bruce Arians more than just about anybody that I know. Okay, If Bruce couldn't fix him, I don't know that Sean – he's not magic, all right? The one thing Jameis gets to do that he couldn't do in Tampa is he doesn't have to be a leader here. And in, in, in which I don't think he should have ever been a leader to begin with. He doesn't express the qualities of leadership. And he gets to not just learn behind Drew Brees and learn under Sean Payton, but he gets to sit there, hold a clipboard, watch, and learn, and actually learn, and nobody is looking to him for answers. Nobody is looking for him for guidance or, or solutions to any of the problems. The media people shouldn't have anything to say to him because he. you're right there's a good chance that he ends up being third string on this depth chart. And third string quarterbacks just don't have anything to say.
0: Well, We'll see what they end up doing once football comes around and training camp comes around. And uh, we'll we'll find out. And, and again, uh, worth noting at the time that we're taping Three Dog Thursday, it turns out that the base salary is only around 1.3 million with incentives that are never going to be reached because he's not he's not going to. I mean, unless something catastrophic happens to Breeze, he's not going to play enough to throw enough to reach any of the incentives. So this is just a modest sit back here and and wait to see. Does Breeze retire after this season? What happens during the year with the injury possibilities? It's a total wait-and-see move. And it only reinforces, again, what I said earlier at the beginning of this podcast, this Three Dog Thursday podcast. I believe for more than a year, the Buccaneers were negotiating against themselves on what Jameis Winston was truly worth on the open market. Va- validation, confirmation that the best he could do was get a one year deal for a little over a million guaranteed instead of the 25. I mean, Chris, if I had one Buccaneer fan argue with me, I had 177 of them argue with me. If the Bucks don't get him 25 million, somebody else will. Not only did he not get 25, he didn't get five he didn't million. Get he didn't get two from no, another team. So it only it only shows again that you you may as in fandom of your team have an idea about what your players are worth, but we all get to find out at some point. A lot of the time, what are they truly worth on the open market? And right now, that that's the best Jameis Winston could do. Uh, all things being it's equal, amazing. He, yeah. Go ahead.
1: It's amazing the stats he put up that somebody else wouldn't take a chance on him. But I just think protecting the football is the most valuable. You listen to these head coaches, man. They talk about it like it's more important than their children. Mm -hmm. The the protecting the football is the most valuable thing in the world. And to Jameis, it's just not.
0: Yeah. Well, And one one other point, uh, and you know this as well, but I, I think it cannot be overstated that when he is broadcasting to everybody on social media and his agents are putting it everywhere, that he had thumb surgery, that he also had meniscus surgery, and he also had LASIK surgery, and team doctors in this current situation with the coronavirus and with distancing and isolation and facilities being closed, team doctors can't examine him, trainers can't examine him. I think there's a real injury question or two that also hampered him uh, in this process. I mean, who wouldn't be leery of hearing all of that and want to check it out for themselves, Chris? It's common sense, and by and large, they haven't been able to. So you put all that into a pot, you that's get right. what you get. You get you get what you get here, and maybe right. it works a, you out. You get a guy
1: worth a million bucks, you get a million bucks and a team that's going to take a literal flyer on you.
0: Well, and we'll see if it works out there or if it's another situation that he goes to after being there. He's young. We'll find out. We'll find out how that part works. Uh, anything else that is on your brain about the draft? You have the floor before we get out of here, Christian. anything else that you want to cover that I haven't covered with you here at the moment? Uh, no, I think the
1: uh, Buccaneers had a really good draft. They got what I believe to be the best tackle in the draft. That's who I actually wanted Cleveland to take. I was screaming at the TV. <laughs> Not that I don't like Wills. I thought Wills was two by a little bit. But worse was, was in my opinion, um, the, the cream of the crop. And, uh, no, I, man, I like the draft. They had a lot. I thought they did a really good job. I trust Bruce Aries. I do. I'm hoping that they are listening to him more um, because I don't know that that front office has had great drafts in the past.
0: There have been pieces that have been put around, and now there's more pieces being put on place. And and I have not said this team's name the entire podcast, but Indianapolis Colts... Uh, with, with the job, with getting Philip Rivers, uh, in the offseason, uh, to come and lead them. And then you wondered how else are they going to try to better themselves? They get Michael Pittman Jr. And am I that old that Michael Pittman from my Super Bowl Buccaneers of 2002? His son is now in the NFL as well. Michael Pittman Jr. as a speedster to compliment, uh, T.Y. Hilton, Jonathan Taylor to run the ball with Marlon Mack. Uh, and later on, they got a couple of other pieces with offensive line. And uh, and I, I liked what the Colts did as well in that AFC South. So that'll be interesting. Well, that's a, that's a really
1: good front office. They're a really good front office. I've talked about for the last couple of years that, that they've made um, some some pretty big changes and, uh, in their front office a couple of years ago. And, and they have been one of the best-ran organizations. If Andrew Luck doesn't hightail it out of there, we don't know what that team really looks like. <laughs>
0: Well, and now they have Rivers for a season with these weapons, and Chris Ballard does deserve credit for building the roster. Remember, they were in the playoffs a couple of years ago, and they were in the hunt last year. Uh, even with Jacoby yeah, the Brissett they, they got in the hunt there That's at the right. end of the year. We'll see what happens. These guys are always in the hunt and do a great job. WinningCuresEverything.com. Uh, Chris Giannini, Gary Seegers. Uh, find them on YouTube at Winning Cures. Find them on social media at Winning Cures. Uh, find him at Christopher B. Giannini on Twitter. Did I cover all of that sufficiently for the fans to come? You're on multiple times a week, you multimedia stars. You're on several times a week right now we're doing right your again. shows.
1: Yep, Monday, Monday through Friday we go live at 4:30 uh, Central Time. The Lord's Time is what we call it, and uh, and that's that's where we're at. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Periscope. If you can't catch us live, you can watch the video. Gary does a little thing where he breaks up the segments to where you don't have to watch the whole hour-long show. You can just watch what we talked about in that one segment.
0: So. It is well done with uh, Gary Seegers and Chris Giannini. I always love you guys insight. I love you having me on. I love getting you guys on Three Dog Thursday. Continued success with the show. uh, Continued success in the household with e-learning and all that's going on that all of us are dealing with, with the school year coming down the stretch. Chris, thank you. It was a treat to have you. Thank you, TJ. And we thank all of you for being with us on Three Dog Thursday. All the way back at the beginning, Brian Edwards, MajorWager.com. Also, Luke Easterling from the USA Today DraftWire. I am merely TJ Reeves. Again, subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, wherever you find your podcast, subscribe to this one. We thank you for being with us here as part of the only digital radio show that loves to talk those underdogs. It's Three Dog Thursday. Bye.